Well, I feel very happy to see you all here. It feels like another level of homecoming to have the meditation group and have people coming. So it's very um, sweet feeling. Um, in the Buddhist calendar are uh, different auspicious holidays, and the one that just passed, which was the full moon of May, is the um, one of the most auspicious holidays of the Buddhist calendar year. It commemorates the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, and his death. Uh, whether all of these things happened on the same day or this is just what people made up, um, this is what we celebrate. And so... I was in, um, in. I visited a, a monastery in Washington State, near outside of Spokane, a monastery that I've known about uh, emerging, developing for the last ten years, but I haven't had a chance to visit yet. And my friend uh, Venerable Tupton Children is the abbess there, and so we were actually together at the monastery during the full moon itself, and. You know, the, the ceremonies that um, monks and nuns do on the full moon and the new moon is, is a, it, we have an opportunity to um, acknowledge and affirm our aspiration. We have an opportunity to reflect on the things that we've done in the last two weeks that have been outside of the parameters of our discipline and to acknowledge that, to communicate that. We have a, uh, an opportunity to, um, to express our regret about those things. And we have an opportunity to uh, reaffirm our precepts. And so the, the precepts and um, just keeping them in mind it, uh, creates a, a clear container so that we're able to see the way that our mind operates and when it's moving out of a centered space into wanting things to be a particular way or not wanting things to be a particular way. And if that movement is based in wisdom, whether it's based in compassion, whether it's based in desire, or whether it's based in aversion. So when you've got a, a clear container uh, and clear boundaries about what is okay and not okay, then the movement of the mind away from what is okay is a powerful opportunity to reflect on what's actually happening here. And uh, what's motivating me? Why am I wanting to do this? And in the, I was with uh, many other nuns, and uh, fully ordained nuns, and so we had a ceremony that we did, and the ceremony allows us to both reflect and affirm our own commitments and to hear the commitments and the reflections of others. And it's just, you know, I live here on my own, as you see, and so for me to have time with other nuns is just very, uh, it's actually very special. It's 
really lovely. I really enjoyed it very much. And the thing about nuns is, is, is that because our lives are not um, ordinary in the sense that, you know, our lives are dedicated to the realization of the Dhamma, and we live with a fair amount of renunciation and simplicity and a focus on um, wanting to understand what the Buddha's teachings were and putting them into practice in our own hearts and minds and being an example and of service to others. Because all of these things are common, then in this community that I was at, even though this community was of a Tibetan tradition, it was a different tradition, there was just an enormous amount of commonality. So spending time with the sisters feels just like so lovely. You know, such a lovely feeling. And I didn't know most of those nuns very well. You know, I'd met them at meetings before, but I don't have like long-standing friendships with many of them. I do with the abbess. I've known her for, I think, probably 15 or 20 years. But the others I didn't know. But it doesn't matter because there's so much common ground in the in the in our aspirations and our commitments and our lifestyles and our dedication that uh, it's just very easy to talk about things and to have conversations just go into um, depth in a way that it's not so easy with people that either you don't know that well or you don't have an awful lot in common. You know, so it's very nourishing. <clears throat> so one of the things that's quite lovely about reflecting on the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment and what he offered in this world is to consider the kind of gifts that he's given us in terms of how we can reflect on our own lives and how we can live our lives in a way which is uh, a blessing, which is skillful, and how we can live our lives in a way where we're not uh, causing or creating pain or suffering for ourselves or for other people. And, um, you know, the, the Buddha was actually a phenomenally wise and skillful teacher, and he laid out a gradual path that talked about wholesome things that we can do that help support bringing about um, more ease and peace and states of happiness in our minds and in a, in a gradual way developing a path and practice and way of cultivating so that we have more and more sense of understanding what is right, what is true, what is good and wholesome in our lives. And the Mangala Sutta that we read has a very interesting um, it's like an instruction booklet. So the, the blessings, the highest blessings, is a graduated course of what are things that we can do to create more health and well-being and less stress and suffering. And, you know, in the Mangala Sutta, the instruction is very simple. You know, don't hang out with idiots. You know, it starts out like a kind of like pretty uncomplicated denominator. And... And, and then moves itself up into more sophisticated and subtle nuances about how to practice. So, you know, and live in a place that's a good place, you know. So if we are hanging out around people who are 
unskillful or filled with um, mind states that are aggressive or fearful or extremely depressed, or if we're dealing with people who are in serious states of addiction, it is really hard to stay in a balanced place ourselves. So, you know, the first instruction is don't hang out with people who are fools. And when our practice gets steady enough and, and stable, then we can go directly into those communities and, and be able to bring the clarity and the blessings that we have to share with them without a, and them impacting us in a way where there's a negative, negative impact. So in the in the Mangala Sutta, you know, it starts out with something simple as not to hang out with fools, and then it moves on in a progressive way. And um, so, if we're not going to hang out with fools, then it's good to spend time with people who are wise and have dear under, who have clear understanding. And in the process of associating with people who have uh, a lot of clarity and a lot of understanding, then there is a way of being respectful and um, appreciative of, of teachers. When we live in places that are suitable and when we have... Um, The, the gifts of, the, of things that we've done in the past that brings forward the ease and clarity of our present mind states and we are committed to living a life of virtue, these are all parts of creating a life that has blessings in it. When we have a livelihood that makes sense, that doesn't cause harm to anybody, when we uh, live in a way which is uh, disciplined and restrained, when our commitment to speaking is to bring about what is truthful and what is uh, harmonious, what is useful and in a, in a timely manner, these create the context for a lot of blessings. It talks about the way in which it's important to support our family and, uh, and again mentions that it's important to not harm anyone in our own livelihood. And then it starts touching. So all of these things are things that people can be engaged in and have no interest whatsoever in cultivating a mind that's inclined towards liberation. This can be stuff that anyone does uh, independent of their faith or their religious aspiration or their sense of, you know, what is the ultimate purpose of being alive. And yet when we do those things, there's going to be more steadiness, more stability, more ease, uh, more sense of trust that a person has in you because of creating wholesome um, seeds that bring forward good results. When we start moving into the Dhamma, the actual teachings of the Buddha, then we're moving out of, the, of a world which is uh, a commonality for all and then begins to focus on some of the blessings that come from putting in the Buddha's teachings into practice. 
So giving with dhamma in the heart is um, to give with the highest motivation and to help relatives and kin. Again, it's a, it's an it's another way of being committed to being of support and service and being aware of our interdependent relationships. And then to start focusing on the things that we do in our life and to see if we are living with a level of integrity where we can be clear that what we are doing has no trace of blame for ourselves in the actions that we commit. Then it moves again a little bit deeper. So restraining ourselves from indulgence, restraining ourselves from doing things which are unskillful, keeping away from the kinds of things that confuse and dull and intoxicate the mind, and being clear and mindful with all the different components that arise as we're navigating our life. These are all components that give rise to blessings. So when we're looking at our way of relating with each other, it's like we're, we're, we are taking uh, layers off the onion. We're going in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to the hub of where is there uh, the greatest sense of ease and well-being and peace. So then it moves into like a sense of behaving in a way with respectfulness and gratitude and cultivating contentment. So in our society, we um, have a society that is based on the principle of cultivating discontent, that somehow the more that we have is not sufficient. And it, um, it, it creates restlessness and agitation and anxiety and a sense of insufficiency and constantly looking for how can I fill that up? How can I feel better? How can I have what I need so that I feel okay? How can I look well? How can I appear in a, with the identity that I think I should be presenting? And what kind of stuff do I need and adventures do I need in order to fulfill that all up? So this whole way of reflecting is, is, to, is to look at the basic things that we need. You know, do we have enough clothes? Do we have enough food to eat for the day? Is the roof tight so that when it rains hard it doesn't leak? You know, do I have the medicines that I need? You know, to just get through the day. And so when we look at these basic needs and check out and see if we've got enough of them, then it really puts um, pause for reflection on these hungers and desires that have us thinking that if we get all this other stuff, that's going to help us be happy. Hearing the Dhamma is to come and listen to people who are teachers, who understand the Dhamma, who are willing to share what they know. And the Dhamma is a little bit different than hanging out in a bookstore or over a, a, a coffee in a cafeteria or you know, just meeting somebody in a um, grocery store. Because it's a kind of way of reflecting that helps us understand 
the way our minds work and how we can focus our attention so that there's less clinging, less grasping, more clarity, more peace, and more ability to be with what is. Patience and willingness to accept one's faults. You know, one of my students um, did something that that um, uh, left quite a bit of residue. And so uh, the next time I had a chance to speak with her, I asked if she was willing to hear the impact of what she had done, and she responded immediately, she was. And so I just said that when you did this, it had this impact. You know, when you did that, it had that impact. And I was very um, moved to see that she was both extremely open and receptive to hearing, as well as grateful for being able to see that um, when she's doing things where she's not clear, it's causing impacts that are unfortunate and she doesn't want to have that happen. But it's not always the case that we're delighted to get feedback about the impact of our actions. And so that's something that actually is a, is a, a, a virtue that we can cultivate, not something that we can just assume is going to automatically just be there. But one of the ways that we can cultivate it is by recognizing that it's important to hear, and by not solidifying a negative sense of, I'm a bad person because I made a mistake, but seeing things in terms of cause and effect. When I do something like that, with these motivations, it has this result. And so when you look at it in terms of cause and effect, we're not creating a bad person or an evil person or a rotten person or a you know, a, a worthless person or a completely inconsiderate person. We're just saying that these behaviors are not so skillful, and with unskillful behaviors comes unskillful results. So when we look at it in terms of that, then it makes it easier to sift out what has happened and makes it easier to focus our attention on where we need to change so that it isn't so... Um, we don't sink into that guilt-ridden, uh, self-disparaging swamp that many of us abide in regularly. You know, We can actually use it as a way of directing our attention to move towards more clarity rather than towards something that's other than that. So... Seeing and accepting one's own faults and then seeing people who are uh, committed to the path of awakening and speaking and sharing the words of Dhamma. And so it's interesting to me that in this list or categorization, there are um, the sharing the Dhamma in some ways is more uh, important to do than just hearing the Dhamma. Because when we share, when we speak from our own experience, we're engaging our own um, understanding. And as we engage our own understanding, there's something about that that comes alive in a way that is not always the case when we're just a, a passive recipient and listening. So the holy life is a life that's committed to um, realizing the end of suffering 
And this holy life can be lived with clarity when we see for ourselves the noble truths. When we see for ourselves the truth that, that suffering is something that is pervasive or the unsatisfactoriness of life is something that is pervasive. You know, even in an incredible, beautiful day, it will shift. You know, an absolutely spectacular flower will fade. You know, a, mo a moment that is pristine and, and yummy and, and bringing all of the feelings that we want to have is not something that we can hold on to because it is going to pass. When we begin to start recognizing that the happiness that we are holding on to, because happiness by its nature is, is dependent on circumstances arising, as we hold on, it causes a kind of stress in our systems. So when we are able to see that happiness comes but it goes, then we can allow it to come without feeling the anxiety or stress or fear or apprehension as things start to shift. And when our bodies get older and things are not working so well and it takes longer to get in shape or our memories are not so clear or so sharp, it doesn't cause the same degree of anxiety because we understand that this is all a natural part of life and where our attention is located is in not identifying or absorbing with the things that are changing, but in something else. And so I, lo I love this, this last one. You know, so even though we live in the world, and even though we engage in normal activities, the mind can remain unshaken and can be beyond sorrow and feel at peace and settled and secure. And so this last, this last um, phrasing, so those who live by following this path, wherever they go, they know victory. And every place for them is safe because the safety that they're seeking is not the safety in external conditions. The safety is something, a place of, a, of an internal abiding. And, you know, to be and feel safe wherever you go, no matter where you are, no matter what is happening, is an extraordinary blessing. So the gradual path of things which are healthy, things which are wholesome, things which are beautiful, things which create more ease and well-being in our own minds, create a sense of being uh, a blessing uh, into the world, into our families, into our neighbors, into our communities, into our work situations. All of that creates the context where the people around us are going to appreciate us, trust us, respect us. And as we feel those things, there's a sense of more confidence and more ease, more sense of assurance. But other people trusting us is not something that we can rely on as being stable and as the only place that we can find our happiness. Because 
one day somebody likes you and the next day they don't. And it might have as much to do with what they had for breakfast as it did, you know, it might have nothing to do with you, you know. And you can see that. You know, people that really were very deep friends and then something happens and it's, it's shifted. And maybe it's clear what happened and sometimes it's not clear what happened. And, and then, and then it's, it's peculiar, it's strange, or it's distant and, you know, it doesn't feel so comfortable. So when our happiness is contingent upon how other people are, how they see us, how they relate to us, then our happiness is extremely fragile. It's very vulnerable. And when we are chasing a very fragile happiness, it puts us in a position of being um, anxious. So when we practice a path that leads us to developing ways in which these kinds of happiness tend to increase, but where our attention begins to shift from trying to seek out that kind of happiness to seeking out a kind of happiness which is stable, which is reliable, which is not dependent on how other people see or feel about us, then we are touching into something which is um, uh, a kind of inner peace and inner well-being that we can take with us wherever we go. When we're looking at the Buddha's birth, and we're looking at, you know, what is a Buddha? You know, a Buddha is an awakened one. That's what Buddha means. It means awakened one. And when we look at the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, here was a human being who at a certain point in time had a sense of, you know, life is filled with all kinds of things that are uncertain. And, you know, the basic kinds of experiences that we have in life of of have being born and growing older and experiencing sickness and eventually death. These are things that no amount of power or prestige or fame or wealth um, can shift. But his, his recognition that there was something that was beyond those things, that there was something that was not conditioned by those things, that might be possible to be realized. And so his quest for understanding what was beyond old age, sickness, and death was a quest that led him to experiencing and realizing this, this mind that is, that is luminous, that is clear, that is vast, and that is free. And in that luminous, clear, vast, and free mind, there is no extra adding on of reaction to what is arising in the moment. And so, you know, we can experience illnesses, we can experience pain, we can experience uh, disability, we can experience loss. But when we're not adding anything extra on top of it, then we don't have the complexity of more suffering that goes with it. We have the, the, the feeling of being sick or the feeling of loss, but we don't have a, the identification with that feeling that creates a sad person who is feeling it. There is, there is illness, there's disability, there is loss, but there's no pushing it away, 
grabbing onto it, identifying with it, or locating oneself in the contents of what one is experiencing. When there is no creating a self in relationship to what is arising, there is no suffering. Now, I want to talk about this Bahia Sutta because the Bahia Sutta is a really powerful exposition of how to practice in order to realize this. Because the Buddha was talking about a gradual path and he was willing to work with people wherever they were at. So he didn't take people and hurl them into the deep end. He took people and worked with them where they were at so that they could develop the foundations that they needed so that they could practice. And so usually what would happen with people when he he would first meet them is that he would encourage them to practice and cultivate generosity and encourage them to practice living with integrity because those two things create the context where it's possible to be able to reflect on the mind and see things for what they are and be able to get through the veils of ignorance that have been keeping us perceiving things in a particular way that keeps us bound up with suffering. It's not often that he would start just with meditation. Meditation would be what he would encourage after they had been preparing the ground, had cultivated generosity, and had cultivated integrity to a degree where they were then able to use the meditation and reflect. So this story about Bahia is an interesting story. Bahia was a bark cloth um, wearer and was convinced that he was enlightened. And he had a large recipient uh, number of... um, uh, He he had students and people worshipped him and revered him and honored him, venerated him, they gave him homage, they took care of him. They offered him robes, they gave him food, they took care of his lodgings, they supported him with the medicine requisites, which was often what would happen in uh, ancient India for teachers and for alms mendicants. They were just, the society knew that it was their responsibility to take care of these people. And this person, Bahia, thought that he was free. So he was sitting alone and he was thinking, And his thought was, now, I wonder who in the world are Arahants who have entered the path of Arahants. And he wondered if he was one. And so a devata, in Buddhist cosmology, there's more than just human beings and animals. There's uh, a whole range of non-visible beings, and some of them are very wise. So a deva is in the higher realm, and the deva had been a, a relative of Bahia and was compassionate, and was interested in Bahia's health and welfare. And so, with her own awareness, she heard the thought of Bahia, and went to him and said, Bahia, you are neither an arahant, nor have you entered the path of arahantship. You don't even have a practice whereby you would become an arahant, or enter the path of arahantship. So it's like, you know, a little bit of... um, Uh, telling it like it is. So Bahia, very wisely, 
didn't recoil into a self-pity, you know, don't talk to me, poor me. He said, well, who, who is an arahant and where can I find him? So Bahia said, well, in the northern uh, count country called Sawati, the Blessed One is there. So the Buddha is living there. And so Bahia said, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to go immediately. And so went immediately to find the Buddha which is not common. If somebody says, you know, you're not on the path to freedom, we don't usually follow that by asking, well, who is and how can I find them? You know? Usually we have all kinds of opinions about who that person is and whether they should have said that. And, you know, we, we recoil into a reactive space rather than take that as a, a blessing that can help us on our path. So Bahia might not have been on the path to Arahantship, but he had enough virtue to be able to hear that kind of cutting feedback and follow it up with a question of how can I progress on my path? So he went to the Buddha. And the Buddha was uh, in Jaita's Grove in Anattapindaka's monastery. And... Um, And he had just gone for alms. And so when he found the monks and asked where he was, they pointed to the direction where he had gone for alms. And so Bahia, he went and found him. And, and he asked, he said, Teach me the Dhammo, blessed one. Teach me that is well for my long-term welfare and happiness. And the Buddha said, you know, it's not the time, Bahia. You know, we're on alms round. This is not the time to ask for teachings. And so a second time and a third time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, it's hard to know for sure what dangers they may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there might be for mine. Please teach me the Dhamma that will be for my long-term welfare and happiness. And so the Buddha responded in this way. So listen very carefully, because this is an extraordinary, clear, very pithy teaching that cuts right to the chase. He said, Bahia, you should train yourself in this way. In the reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed, in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. For when you there will be only the seen, only the heard, only the sensed, only the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So let's unpack this a little bit. 
Normally when we see something, we see it, we have all kinds of associations about it, and then we identify with the associations. Okay? The same is true for what we hear, for what we smell, for what we feel, for what we taste, and for what we think. We have a thought. We have associations connected to the thought. We have reactions to the associations and identification. And in all of that, I become me thinking that. I become me seeing you there. I become me listening to the sounds of the cars there. Okay? But if, instead of becoming me listening to the sounds of the cars there, I just bring attention to the sound, just the sound, just the sound, I don't posit a me in relationship to it. I'm just clear and present with the sense without adding extra associations, without identifying, without reacting, without pushing away. There is just the sounds. There is just the sounds. There is just the sounds. When I am just with the sounds, the sounds are not there. And I am not here. There is just the sound. When there is just the sound, there is no sense of me and it. There is just sound. When there is just sound, there is nothing extra added to the sound. There's no stress with the sound. I am not locating myself in being the one who is listening to the sound which is out there. There is just the knowing of sound. It is so simple and so incredibly difficult. It's, it's huge. It's <laughs> just like, wow. I think of, it makes me think of psychology and how, like, social psychology, everything is based on our perceptions and our social constructs that we've built up over life. So everything that we interact with, we have all of this backstory. And the idea of just taking all of that away is just... It's not that we take it all away. It's that we notice it, but we don't identify with it. And then catch it. That's right. Okay, so it's not that it evaporates, but it is observed as another thing just to observe. Just like the sound is another thing just to know. All of the associations that come are just things that can be known. They aren't things that are true in and of themselves, separate from the conditioning that gave rise to them. Yeah. So the story of what happened to Bahia is, is, is that that was his instruction. He left the Buddha, and like very shortly after he left the Buddha, within a few steps of leaving the Buddha, he was gored by a cow and killed. Okay? 
And so the monk said, what do we do with Bahia? And so they said, you know, prepare him and cremate him and prepare his remains for um, a stupa. And they said, what is his destination? What happened to him? And the Buddha said, he was completely free when he died. So the amount of time it took from him to hear those instructions and the few steps before he lost his life, he completely got it. He completely got it and completely saw through the veils of ignorance so that there was no more suffering that he was experiencing. He was completely free. Now one of the things that I love about the sutta is is that it puts into perspective that when we are actually really practicing, like really practicing, that this kind of freedom can happen right now. It doesn't need to happen in 10,000 years or in 100 years or after a five-year retreat or a three-year retreat. It can happen right now. But we have to be wanting to practice and have the virtue to be able to practice. So the fact that it can happen right now doesn't mean that it always does happen right now because we don't have the virtue to make it happen, to see that it happens, to allow the conditions to ripen. But the reason why this is so powerful is because this absolutely cuts to the chase. Absolutely cuts right to the chase of how do you live where you are not adding anything extra to what you're experiencing. And what can happen in the kind of freedom that can come when you see as clearly as that. Now, what happened to Bahia? in the sense of the veils of ignorance were vanquished because he saw clearly, is the blessings of the Buddha. That is the blessings of the Buddha when we ourselves know and taste that freedom. So, on a day like Vesak, when we're celebrating the Buddha, The greatest blessing is to practice so that we have that same level of understanding, so that we are free in the same kind of way. It's not to worship the Buddha as an external entity who is going to bestow upon us some kind of grace. It's to acknowledge that that awakened mind is innate and ever-present and here right now. And that as we honor and venerate that, We are honoring and venerating this. And as we are honoring honoring and venerating this, we have more tangible connection with what is possible in our life. It isn't only about being relaxed, you know. It's a kind of radical freedom it's a radical departure from what is normally considered possible. So when we talk about the blessings of the Buddha and we do the chanting, talking about the blessings of the Buddha and the blessings of the Dhamma and the blessings of the Sangha, the blessings of the Buddha take us to this quality of wakeness 
the blessings of the Dhamma are the path, the stepping stones, the instructions that lead us there. The blessings of the Sangha are the people who have understood this, who are aspiring to understand this. It's worth celebrating. It's worth rejoicing.